it was kind of we were kind of laughing about it because we're putting fences up around all the fields, the cropping fields in front of our house, yeah. right, or in yeah. front of the farm and around right. the farm, right. And uh, there was a comment made that our grandpa Norman probably tore all those fences out <laughs> years ago, sweating and toiling over yeah. it, and then we're you know putting all these things back in. So it's just funny how the cycle goes. Welcome to the 325th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When Matt and Seth Tentis began taking over their family's farm in southeastern Minnesota in 2016, it was clear why the 300 acres had been growing mostly corn and soybeans for the previous dozen years. The farm is made up of flat, fertile, bottomland soil and the fields are wide open, making for easy operation of equipment. But the brothers knew they needed to farm differently if they were going to make a go of it. Both are employed off the farm and have young families. In addition, Matt is in the National Guard, a responsibility that can take him away from the area when he's deployed. They wanted to employ farming practices that would reduce labor and cut machinery costs. So, they began transitioning the farm utilizing soil health practices such as no-till, minimum till, cover cropping, and diverse rotations. A key component of that transition has been reintegrating livestock onto the farm. The operation has been in the family since 1938 and over the decades has been home to hogs, dairy cows, even turkeys. But starting in 2003, animals were pretty much replaced with row crops. Getting livestock out on the land via rotational grazing of perennial pastures and cover crops is a main tenet of building soil health. So, Matt and Seth established a rotational grazing infrastructure on acres that were formerly row cropped, utilizing funding and technical help available through the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, which is administered by the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Putting up fence around open fields raised a few eyebrows in the neighborhood, especially since a previous generation had worked hard to tear those fence posts out. Today, the Tennises have a 50-cow herd that serves as the basis of their White Barn Acres direct-to-consumer beef enterprise. They also raise sweet corn for a local cannery, as well as soybeans. In addition, in recent years, they've experimented with growing camelina, which is an oil seed, and kernza, which is the world's first commercially viable perennial grain. White Barn Acres is less than two miles from the Mississippi River and lies in the heart of southeastern Minnesota's fragile, and porous karst geological area. That means building a farm business that's based on good soil health not only benefits two brothers looking for ways to make their operation more efficient, it also provides a public good in the form of a reduced reliance on fertilizer and other chemical inputs. That part of the state is considered a hotspot for nitrate fertilizer contamination of groundwater, and the main source of that pollution is intense, tillage-heavy, production of row crops like corn and soybeans. That's one reason the farm's use of USDA support to establish a regenerative grazing system is such a great use of public funding. Because of the practices the brothers use, White Barn Acres is a Minnesota agricultural water quality certified farm, which means it qualifies for, among other things, specially designated technical and financial assistance to implement practices that promote water quality. In fact, the Tentuses have used several government and university programs to put in place soil-friendly practices. 
During an October field day sponsored by LSP and Clean River Partners, among others, the family described how support from the Land Stewardship Project, the Wabasha County Soil and Water Conservation District, Practical Farmers of Iowa, the Sustainable Farming Association, Continuum Mag, and the University of Minnesota's Forever Green Initiative has helped them not only get their practices established, but provided them an opportunity to take a chance on experimentation involving something like a perennial grain. I visited Matt Tentis later in the fall while he was doing some fencing. He took a break to show me a thriving cocktail mix of cover crops that he and Seth planned on grazing after the first hard frost. Later, Matt sat down to talk to me about his family's soil health journey and the key role various groups and agencies have played in assisting them along the way. He started our conversation by making it clear that reintegrating livestock onto the land is a critical link in the regenerative farming chain they're attempting to forge. Uh, one of the things that, you, you know, you, you're pretty familiar with the principles of soil health, you know, keep it covered, mm-hmm. armor on the soil, roots in the ground. But one of the big ones is integrating livestock. So that sounds like that's been a pretty important piece for you. I think for us it's it was the biggest piece in some ways, simply because the cattle is another revenue stream for mm-hmm. the farm, right? And if we're increasing the amount of forage we have available for a herd that can increase size, we can take more animal units on and things like that. Hauling manure is labor-intensive, mm-hmm. uh, takes time, equipment, um, and things like that. Now we still haul a little bit of manure, mm-hmm. but we can get that done in a couple days, and we don't have to buy any big equipment for that. We can keep it simple. So there's a lot of advantages to that, and the challenge is the fencing and the infrastructure. Obviously. Yeah. Was yeah. What was the infra- what was the fencing? And it sounds like you had to invest in. Was that? Did you not have good fencing infrastructure when you were kind of reintegrating livestock? Or? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was kind of we were kind of laughing about it because we we're putting fences up around all the fields. The cropping fields in front of our house, yeah. right? Or in yeah. front of the farm and around right. the farm. And uh, there was a comment made that our Grandpa Norman probably tore all those fences out <laughs> years ago, sweating and toiling over yeah. it. And then we're, you know, putting all these things back in. So it's just funny how the cycle goes. Because obviously at one point in time, farmers were told to plant crops every inch you can get. Right. Uh, and I did have a question was asked, you know, why are you taking good cropping land and putting cattle on that or turning that to pasture. And yeah. For us, it worked better to have a certain amount of cropping land mixed with pasture or cattle doing the work for us. Yeah. So it worked very well. Yeah, it is. I'll say it's striking to drive. Like I said, this is just a really beautiful valley here where the land lays super flat, perfect for cropping. And I see a lot of cropping around here. Um, you know, we're in end of October now and so it's harvest time so you really get a sense of just how much corn and beans are raised around here it's striking to pull up to your place and I'm like oh there's new fencing around this perfect what we could looks like perfect crop ground <laughs> it really does kind of it's like oh okay this is different than what I've been seeing driving along this valley yeah well it and that goes speaks back to when we started right we looked at what uh the previous generation was doing which was amazing and good and it it worked very well for them but we knew it wasn't going to work for us you know i have a job as a physician assistant i have a young family my brother has a job off the farm and a young family and as much as the idea of farming on 300 acres supporting two families would be nice Uh 
we didn't necessarily see that happening or we weren't willing to do some of those extra things that maybe could make that happen. Mm -hmm. It just didn't interest us. But we knew what we wanted to do. And so one of the main goals, and this fit well in my mind with the soil health journey, Mm -hmm. was we needed to reduce the amount of labor we were doing. We needed to reduce machinery costs, operational costs, to make the farm stand financially on its own. So part of that was making cropping less expensive and, and building up that cattle operation that did a lot of the work on its own too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's been a journey. There's been errors and we haven't always, you know, we don't, we don't get, we're not winning any yield contests with some of the cropping things we do as we, as we experiment. But I think overall we've met our goals yeah. so far. Uh, we were just looking at a beautiful 20 acre stand of cover crops here. I think you said there was turnips or what all was it? Was <laughs> yeah. it in there? Turnips, it was and- turnips, radishes, uh, some uh, rye, possibly some winter wheat, uh, some cow peas. And I say possible because it was yeah. just kind of a mix we had had around from years of doing cover crops where we have a little seed left. So yeah. we decided to use that up this year. Well, it looks awesome. And it we had such a dry, I mean, historically dry summer here. And then we've gotten these rains the past couple of weeks and it's really flourished. And you said you're going to, once you get a frost, you're going to look at grazing that. Can you give me an idea of so was that what was the history of this field here? What, what mm-hmm. what's give me an idea of kind of the, I guess the cycle that you'll go through with a field like that where you're obviously grazing the cover crops and getting oh, use sure. out of them. But what what was it before? And, yeah, we grow sweet corn like I said, so we'll grow a crop of sweet corn that'll come out in August, okay. kind of early to mid August. We'll follow that with a cover crop and. Usually the sweet corn get followed with a grazing cover crop because uh-huh. we still have enough growing time to get decent forage quality and an amount out of that. The next crop after that would be a, sweet, a soybean crop. Then we'll follow that with a overwintering cover crop, usually not grazed because there just isn't a lot of time mm-hmm. for that. And that point in the rotation is where we, we might do a small grain uh, maybe like a winter rise, what we did before, and that worked really well. Mm-hmm. We're kind of toying with different options uh, there. Um, but the switching between the sweet corn and the soybeans has worked pretty well. Where the experimental stuff comes into play, so camelina we followed after sweet corn and took that to seed mm-hmm. uh, and then followed that with a grazing cover crop. So that was kind of like a soybean in the, in the mix. Mm-hmm. We've only done that once. Yeah, because so, camelina, for people who aren't aware, it's a oil seed yeah. type. Yep. A fairly new thing in this area anyway. Definitely new in this area. If you grow anything other than corn or soybeans, you're you're kind of an outlier here. Yeah. Uh, there are small, not that there aren't other crops being grown, there are small grains, uh, which I've we've found that the market supply chain here is easier to navigate with small grains. Mm-hmm. Um Definitely corn and soybeans, uh, the canning crops maybe, uh, depending on where you're located, but camelina is a little bit more of a challenge, so there's that. Yeah. Now, the other thing that we work into our rotation is is like a pasture or a regenerative period, uh, and I think it was that term came from, I saw a presentation by Rick Clark, okay. uh, yeah. and he talked about regenerative periods for his ground, and I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. So. We try to put ground into something perennial 
for three years at a time or, or longer. The NRCS programs were five years, so those fields stood for five years as a, as a pasture. And we've kind of observed that pasture has decreased in its quality over time. So mm-hmm. one section was pretty low quality last year. We just took it out and, turned, and did no-till soybeans into that yeah. this year. So our Kernza, I would consider a regenerative period for that chunk of ground. Yeah, so let's talk about, we looked at that Kernza field during the field day. I don't know, how many acres is that? It's 20 acres. 20 acres, yeah. too. Yeah, so that's another beautiful flat. be good for corn. <laughs> It'd be a good stand of corn, but you have Kernza there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, describe, I guess, what what drew your interest to that. And Kernza is this perennial intermediate wheatgrass. It's, it's, it's hailed as the first commercially viable perennial grain in the in the world mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> at the U's been working on through the Land Institute. But what, what drew you to that, to work with that? Well, I think for us, it gives you the option to harvest a grain, mm-hmm. uh, like you just mentioned. So that's a revenue stream, potentially. Uh, and then it also provides an opportunity for grazing. Mm. And since we have cattle on all of our ground as much as possible, yeah. uh, that seems like a really good fit. So, for example, our pastures, we can't I mean, you can harvest a forage crop, of course, Yeah. Uh, but we're not harvesting a grain. So we thought we'd give Kernza a try in that same concept where it's multi-purpose. Mm-hmm. We can graze it and we can harvest a grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, incidentally, you can also, the, the straw, uh, it's not like an oat straw, for example, with pretty low, nearly, I suppose, zero forage value. Yeah. The forage value from the Kernza straw is actually still relatively, relatively good oh. with that as a comparison. So we did get 46 bales of forage bales off of that field as well. So that's 20 acres. Yeah, so that's an additional kind of benefit. And when do you when do you bale that? Uh, well, we bailed that, I think it was uh, August, mid-August. So. And you had harvested the grain and then bailed the, the straw yeah. after yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So is this the first year you've had the kerns up? Yeah, it is. We planted it after sweet corn uh, in September of 2022 okay. and uh, took it through this year, harvested the grain, Took a uh, bale the uh, the baleage off of it, the straw, and then uh, now we're anticipating to be able to graze it uh, sometime in November, hopefully. Okay, so what do you think so far? Well, yeah, I mean, initially, you know, we planted it at about eleven pounds per acre, mm-hmm. and initially, it looked pretty thin, mm-hmm. like it didn't didn't really shoot up. It wasn't as full as like rye, what mm-hmm. we're used to seeing with rye. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a little skeptical, but uh, our, you know, the folks we worked with at Forever Green and some of those organizations, they, they kind of warned us that it might not look great in the when we planted in the fall, and mm-hmm. we got to wait and see. A little bit of weed pressure in it. And then, lo and behold, this year was, you know, we had some rain in May, but then it was dry through the entire summer. Uh, and then we also had a little bit of a, a mold, potentially, with, mm. within the Kernza as well. So we kind of had a couple strikes against us there, but I will say we harvested it. I think the harvest was lower on the average, probably, maybe mm-hmm. a little below average. Uh, I was surprised to get 46 bales of straw off of it, so it kind of beat my expectations there given the year it was. Um, but now it's actually filling in even more than it was last year. We got new growth, mm. uh, I suspect, from some of the seeds that fell off and shattered or whatever okay. yeah. uh, during harvest. So I'm really looking forward to next year to seeing what it looks like. It's a little bit hyped that it you can get three revenue streams off mm. a Kernza field. I mean, 
you're maybe kind of seeing that a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. You know, and I don't I don't know how that compares. You know, like you mentioned corn, right? Yeah. The, the comparison would be corn or soybeans. Mm-hmm. I mean, we put a little bit of nitrogen fertility on it after harvest, but we didn't put anything on it before that. Mm-hmm. We have not sprayed it. There's no chemical spray on it. So the input costs are much lower. We don't have to plant that ground again next year. Yeah. It'll just grow. So I think over the long run, labor costs and things of that, what we were considering, you know, kind of prioritizing for us, uh, I'm pretty happy with it. So this is part of a University of Minnesota Research yep. Forever Green project. Or do they provide the seed and all that, or how does that work? Yeah, they helped organize things and get us the information we needed. So mm-hmm. where do I get the seed? So they yeah. provide the dealers and things like that. And um, they help really facilitate the things that we need to keep the crop growing. Like I sent them pictures today of what it looks like you know, now, and we get a little feedback. The harvesting was nice because they were able to speak to some of the combine settings and some what we should expect to see with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't provide the seed, but they give the, the technical advice and yeah. kind of that we really need to grow a new crop that we're not familiar yeah. with. So is it too early to tell whether this financially this is something that uh, pencils out? Uh, probably for us. Uh, it's probably too early to tell. But, you know, one of the things we try to do is we like to experiment, but we don't like to go into things blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, org and the folks at Forever Green, I mean, they've done the math on these things. Other, we're the, the research project we're involved in is a repeat of another project that they did previously. So okay. it's more of a validation study, I suppose. And, you know, so they have the economics and the financial data from previous experiments that looked pretty good Mm -hmm. so yeah one theory that's being thrown out there is if the grazing can maybe set it back a little bit so that because Mm -hmm. the way it's set up now kind of three years it really starts to lag Mm, as a crop yeah and then you have to replace it with something but that the grazing may set it back in a way if you do it right that it could extend its life a little bit to be clear, we do have to be careful with the grazing, right? We, we It has to be a managed grazing mm-hmm. plan. You can't just let the cattle out there and for whatever period of time. You have to watch yeah. how much they take and stuff like that. So we got to be mindful of that. You folks seem to be really good at taking advantage of various programs and, I guess, ways of kind of putting in systems that will build that soil health in a profitable manner. I guess... Because you've been involved with U of M research, you've gotten equipped funds, but what's, yeah, what are some of the programs that you guys have been able to use over the past couple of years to put in some of these systems and, and figure out if this is something that is viable, you know, both from an economic standpoint, a management standpoint for, for your particular farm? Yeah, I, when we were doing this, we, it's a business, right? It takes mm-hmm. money in yeah. and investment to, to make these changes and these decisions and build this infrastructure. And, you know, as much as we had a certain amount of capital to use at the very beginning, was that all that money going to come from my, my family's bank accounts, my brother's bank accounts. And there was some of that investment too, of course. Then I looked at, well, do I get a loan from the bank at a certain interest rate? And what does that look like? Mm But then we started to branch out a little bit. So what does the NRCS provide? What does SWCD? What do these different organizations 
Practical Farmers of Iowa is a good example where they they help cost share on cover crops and things like that, and mm-hmm. they have a wealth of programs. Through that, you know, it was net networking with all these people, and then I find that even with working with NRCS, like they'll call us. Mm-hmm. Right, we talk with them often enough that they'll call us because they think about us. Oh, so, maybe a program's uh, appropriate for you guys. Yeah, definitely, okay. and they they've been great at that. And then it kind of led to, especially with the Camelina project, I think was our first research-based project where we're working with the U on the University of Minnesota. So there's some financial cost share and advantage there as well, along with just giving back to the community, right, and Mm -hmm. the data that we collect and telling our experience. So a lot of it is learning to look up, to think outside the box in terms of where you get your funding and then uh, your advice and and guidance. So how long have you kind of been on this integrating some of these soil health practices how many years has it been well the 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 cover crops have been going on here on the farm to some degree before 2016 Mm -hmm. maybe 10 years okay but we've had cover crops on nearly all of our fields since 2017 i would say occasionally we we don't get to a field like you know we have one field left to plant rye on you know, in Minnesota, we're October 25th now. Yeah. We've done late, like, November plantings before, but I feel like we get so little growth out of a cover crop that mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like, well, I don't know if that's worth our time and money yeah. there. But for the most part, nearly 90% of the ground, the agricultural ground gets yeah. cover crops. Yeah, um, half a dozen to, you know, over uh, almost a decade of doing some of this stuff. What are you seeing? What do you see? Are you seeing some uh, improvements in the soil health, or, or what are you seeing with as far as your soil goes? Yeah, I think uh, some anecdotal comments. Like uh, my brother has made several comments that he's noticed the texture of the soil. It's easier to work. For example, we were planting beans into that that rye crop last spring when you know some of our, most of our neighbors hadn't planted yet because mm-hmm. we could. It had that that the texture and it could take the, uh, that planting. We've had suspect that some of our soil cropping methods have improved our water holding capacity to some degree. So even this year when it was dry, you know, we don't have irrigation, right? Mm. We saw pretty average sweet corn yields, mm-hmm. even with the dry year. I'd like to think that had something to do with all these things we're doing. <laughs> like, I really hope it did, you yeah. know? Even those average yields, yields, it was such a dry year that I was expecting worse. So yeah. um, maybe that's a good sign there. The other thing we're doing is we're working with Continuum Ag. They were at our event. Mm, right. They help farmers kind of take that next step in some of these soil health practices. So it's one thing to plant cover crops and do all these things we're doing. Now I want to see benefit in reducing input costs maybe i could use less fertilizer these types of things so Mm -hmm. they're doing more regular with them we're doing more regular soil tests we're tracking these things and trying to get a good baseline compared to like our original soil tests Mm -hmm. right you know evidence from them when they came out they commented on the number of earthworms they saw when they were digging and doing their their work so that's always a good sign Um, we've definitely noticed more insects and things like that Mm -hmm. um I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that it's working, but uh, it's working in so many other areas that I think we're. I don't see us ever going back. And one of your goals was to save labor. How about that? How, what's the anecdotal evidence on that? Well, <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Uh, 
So I'm in the National Guard. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that earlier. I'm yeah. still in. Yeah. Uh, and with that comes obligations, right? So in 2020, I deployed with the Minnesota Army National Guard. There is no way that my brother could have farmed the way we were farming originally mm -hmm. by himself while me being gone. He does the vast majority of the labor on the farm. I, I will uh, definitely, I want to make that clear. But I think the labor, the strain would have been so great to just do it by yourself and have young kids and do a job off the farm. Right. Like, I don't think that's possible to do that in a healthy way anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I was able to deploy for six, seven months, and the farm operation kept going. We were still able to sell beef. We were still able to, to do the things we needed to do. I think it the labor side has, has helped. And it's actually grown to give us opportunities. So, for example, in the fall, because we do sweet corn, we're smaller, granted. But because we do sweet corn and we don't have much for soybeans, we've planted cover crops for neighbors and other people because we're not harvesting. It's opened up opportunities there. But I say me being gone and having a single-man operation for that period of time, I think it demonstrated that the system works for us on the labor side. So you're not afraid to experiment, and you're, you're, it seems like you're good, pretty good at accessing funds for experimenting and, and resources and, and you know figuring out where you can get uh, information and connecting with other farmers, that type of thing. Are there some things now that you're looking at that you'd like to try in the future or are you uh yeah what are kind of your short or even long-term goals as far as some things you really like to look at we kind of set kind of a five-year ten-year kind of plan and that big part of that was getting the fencing in and, mm -hmm. and those types of things like i mentioned we still do some tillage it would be nice to move towards a complete no-till system you know the sweet corn isn't as amenable to no-till i think it just needs a nicer soil base mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe a strip-till system. So we're looking at maybe doing something there. But at this point, I think it's possibly putting in some more Kernza and then maybe still experimenting with uh, Camelina or something like that. What I'd really like to do, I think our next big goal, is to see that change in input costs. Mm. Can we lower our fertilizer costs? Can we manipulate our chemical costs? We're not organic. I don't know if we'll ever go organic, but we know, for example, we have nitrogen and chemical residue in our drinking water. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sit well with us, so we definitely want to pull back on that. I think that's probably our next big cropping thing is just in a management thing and then increasing profitability with what we do. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see about more experimentation, but I think we need to fine-tune those things. During the field day, we went down the driveway. It was kind of uh, pointed out that we were walking by a no-till soybean field that, 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 that you have there, which now mm -hmm. I see has really got a nice cover crop. Is that rye that's growing on that? That's there? rye. Yeah, that's rye, rye cover yeah. crop going after we get these rains. And we were going by a, this cover crop field over here. It's like a five-species mix. And then we stopped at a Kernza field, which is a perennial grain system and then it was pointed out that across the road it was plowed up black and that's something that we've yeah. like to avoid it, it sounds like that is and it, and it was also pointed out that this is a hot spot for nitrate contamination mm -hmm. in groundwater i mean this whole driftless area area that's always been an issue but there are some real particular hot spots and this area is one of them on mm -hmm. the map that shows it i mean how important that must make you feel 
pretty good about maybe some of the steps you're taking or how important is that to you, the, the whole water quality issue? Well, to me, it's very important. Uh, I mean, it should be important. We need water, mm-hmm. right? And you need good quality water. So on our farm, you know, I can only control the land that we we operate, right? Yeah. Um, I can tell you there's a field in the Zumbro Bottoms just below this house that you dig three feet down and you've hit water table. Wow. Right? You've hit water, right? Uh, this year it probably would have been further with how dry it was. But that field used to be corn, corn on corn. And across the the way, the, ne- the next field over is corn as well. Mm-hmm. Those fields are getting nitrogen, chemicals, all those things, just like ours did. The well water from the house we're sitting in now was 30 parts per million nitrogen and had five different residue evidence or residue for different chemicals. And I should point out the, the drinking water standard is 10 parts per million. Yeah, it's 10 parts per million. Yeah. And all those chemicals come from corn application, right? So for me growing up in this house, so I was drinking that water all those years, I can't connect. I don't know the data. I don't know the literature of health concerns with that. I know when I was, you know, I I know stories from my mom who said she had to get water from the neighbors with concern for blue baby syndrome, which is directly related to nitrogen uh, intake. So that's a more immediate thing. But over time, what are the repercussions for exposure to these chemicals. To me, especially as a physician assistant, I work in healthcare, I work in emergency medicine, you know, uh, I want to see a healthy population just in general. And so we believe decreasing those types of things is important, at least as much as we can, right? Our neighbors and other people around us decide to do that's that's not our business, and we don't we don't pretend that we have all the answers or our farming practices are better or whatever. Uh, for the soil health practices, I know that they're better, but we make decisions based on what we can do here. I will fully admit, like we talked about the beans earlier, it's frustrating when we get back yields that we're like, uh, that's that hurts, <laughs> you know. But you know, for us, it's a degree of risk. What degree of risk do we want to take? Yeah. Right? Is it an entire field or maybe a section of the field? And we've dabbled in some things that have just a little chunk here or there um, just to see if it works. We're happy to take a certain amount of hit on some of that production stuff to learn and grow. And we feel in the long run we'll be better off. I, I am fairly convinced that if you can grow Camelina well and learn to grow it now, it's going to pay off for you in the future mm-hmm. as an operation. I suspect Kernza is probably going to be the same. So a certain percent of our time is going to go towards looking into those things. It is my opinion that giving back is important. We want to tell our story. I, I don't think we're, we're on the cutting edge of things per se, but we also, we're not doing anything for the first time. Most of the stuff we've done, mm-hmm. other people have tried. But I'm happy to help connect people to other people or tell people what we're doing and talk about it. I'm, I, I enjoy doing that, and I think that I get a lot of value out of that. For more information on building soil health profitably and sources of funding for adopting regenerative farming practices, See the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 325 at landstewardshipproject.org. 
If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize. And word of mouth is the best way to spread the news about our podcast. If you like what you hear, tell at least one person about LSP's Ear to the Ground. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.